Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Revelation chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 to 20 minutes. However, when we begin a new series, it is often helpful to give ourselves a few extra minutes in order to cover some basic introduction and orientation. Given that this is probably the most complicated book in the Bible, we better not waste any more time. First thing you have to wrap your head around when reading the book of Revelation is the issue of literary genre. Anyone who reads the Bible figures out pretty quick that there are different types of literature in the scriptures. And the more you know about those types of literature, the easier it will be for you to make sense of the authorial intention. If you know a little bit about first century Greco-Roman letters, then it will be easier to understand all of the epistles in the New Testament. If you know a little bit about Hebrew poetry, It will help you appreciate and enjoy the Psalms. And if you know a little bit about Jewish apocalyptic literature, it might keep you from inventing a heresy or starting a cult or doing something else that you really ought not to do. Apocalyptic literature has no real parallel in our Western English experience. We do do poetry, we do letters, we do history, but we don't do apocalyptic. And that goes a long way towards explaining why we have struggled to make sense of this particular part of the Bible. Maybe the simplest way of thinking about apocalyptic would be to compare it to art as opposed to prose. Uh, There are different ways of communicating. You, You can tell a story straight up, like you might tell it in a newspaper article. But you can also tell it with a picture. We have that saying in English, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, Revelation is more like an art gallery filled with pictures than a newspaper filled with articles, right? John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and he saw a variety of visions. So the the best way to understand Revelation is to think of it as a gallery of dreams. Dreams are filled with symbols and pictures. Think about the dreams that Joseph was able to interpret for Pharaoh or the dreams that Daniel was able to interpret for Nebuchadnezzar. The goal when interpreting dreams and visions is not to be as woodenly literalistic as possible. The goal is to interpret the imagery. So, do you remember Pharaoh's dream about the ugly cows coming up out of the Nile? That that was not a prophecy about an invasion by hideous bovine aliens. It was a prophecy about seven years of famine. Right? So, so Joseph was able to get the sense of the dream by interpreting the symbols. Likewise, if, if you insist on being woodenly literalistic, you will make a horrible mess of the book of Revelation. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that most of the imagery in these visions is taken from Old Testament books and stories. It's almost like the Holy Spirit has painted pictures for John in colors borrowed from Old Testament canvases. 
Therefore, if you know the Old Testament, you should be way ahead of the game when it comes to making sense of Revelation. I heard one scholar say that there are over 400 direct citations or indirect allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Therefore, almost every verse is carrying with it some sort of Old Testament context. It's the sort of book you should read slowly and with another Bible open to the Old Testament near beside you. Now, in terms of how this book has been understood, there are basically three interpretive approaches. Some scholars uh, refer to five or even six approaches, but the extra ones are really just subcategories of the three main approaches. First of all, there are those who see this book as prophesying mostly future events. So from chapter 4, verse 1 onwards, they see it as entirely future. This has been very common in the 20th century among North American evangelicals. And this approach is sometimes called the premillennial dispensational approach. Now, it was virtually unknown prior to 1850. And, and that, I think, should function as a bit of a pause in our soul. But it is possible that as the Spirit continued to illuminate the Scriptures, folks came to a clear understanding of what is admittedly the most complicated book in the Bible. So we won't disqualify this view entirely just because it's relatively new, but we ought to be cautious with that approach. Now, the second approach would be to see most of the content from 4.1 onwards as looking back upon events that took place around the year 8070. So if, if we assume that this letter was written around 8090, there are some folks who, who think that pretty much everything in it, other than obviously the last two chapters, is historical, meaning it, it, it's already happened. They're looking back on 8070 and, and, and the great tribulation that occurred when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So they, they see this as a book that has continuing value in the sense that, uh, you know, First Chronicles has continuing value, but they don't see it as future-oriented. And this has been popular in certain places and at certain times, but it has never been the majority view of the church. It is known usually by the name the Preterist view. The third view is often called the historical view. This is the idea that the book of Revelation offers a trans-temporal interpretation of history. That is to say, it presents the pattern of providence that governs, directs, and steers history towards its ultimate end. Therefore, the visions may have multiple and recurring fulfillments working their way towards an ultimate and final fulfillment. Now, this has been the majority view throughout much of Christian history. This, this for example, was the, uh, the view that most of the Reformers held to and that most of the Puritans held to. This is why Martin Luther, for example, could speak without any embarrassment at all and could refer to the Pope as the Antichrist. By the way, as did William Tyndale. By the way, as did the framers of the original Baptist Confession in 1689. Everyone at that time was convinced that Roman Catholicism was the whore of Babylon and that the Pope was the Antichrist. Nowadays, it's common to be critical of those views. But, but if the Reformers were wrong, it was only in believing that the manifestations of these patterns in their day was the ultimate and final manifestation. They weren't wrong for interpreting their experiences through the lens of this letter, that's what we're supposed to do. Look at verse 1 of Revelation. 
Okay, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So Jesus has been given a revelation by God the Father, which is for the servants of Jesus Christ, so that they may be prepared to face the events which must soon take place. Now, if the content of Revelation was to be largely irrelevant to the concerns of the church for the next 2,000 years or so, that would be a very strange introduction. But the content was meant to prepare them to understand the things that would be happening to them soon and until and increasingly until the return of Christ. And if that's the case, then that makes perfect sense, that introduction. So, long story short, while I think the Reformers were obviously wrong in assuming that they were experiencing the ultimate and the final manifestation of these patterns, I don't think they were wrong in reading their times through the lens of these prophecies and visions. I think that is exactly what we're supposed to do in every age of the church. So, I think that this was true. I think that it is true. And I think that it will be true in a unique way in the very last days before Christ returns. So, you know, for example, the Apostle John says in 1 John that there are already many antichrists in the world. But but he also talks about, a, you know, an, an ultimate antichrist. And so I guess I'd put it this way. I think that there have been antichrists in every generation I think that there, there was an Antichrist in Martin Luther's generation. I think that there are Antichrists right now in our generation. And I think that all of these lesser Antichrists, all of these uh, lesser patterns, all point to a great end times Antichrist. And so I think it, it was true. I think it is true. And I think it will be True, And in that sense, I generally hold to a what I would call a chastened version of the historical approach. All right, that's, that's all the time. That's more than the time we have for orientation. So we need to get into chapter one. Chapter one begins with content that we would find in any letter in, in the first century, right? The book of Revelation is, in one sense, an epistle, a letter. But it is a letter that records dreams and visions for the benefit of the church in all ages— beginning with the church in the first century. It's written by the Apostle John from the prison island of Patmos to seven churches in Asia Minor that were under his care and oversight. So let's begin reading. Hear now the word of the Lord. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pause there. There's an obvious break. 
Now, we, we won't be able to point out all of the Old Testament allusions in this book, but we will try and note the more significant ones. Here in verse 6, John is alluding to Exodus 19, where God forms his people and calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And John here states that through Christ, this program has been expanded beyond ethnic Israel and is now rooted in the crosswork of Jesus and all who share in his blood share in the kingdom and are commissioned as priests serving God the Father. The Apostle Paul picks that theme up in Romans 12, verse 1. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter chapter 2. The Protestant Reformation made much of this. We are a kingdom and a priesthood, not a kingdom with a priesthood. That's a significant distinction. Praise the Lord. John continues back into the text at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Let's pause again. Here, John paints a picture of the end, and he does it using colors borrowed from two Old Testament canvases. Daniel 7, which we'll come back to in a minute, and Zechariah 12. Let me show you the one from Zechariah 12. Listen to Zechariah 12, verse 10. This is what the scripture says. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. I'll go on record as saying that is the most amazing prophecy in the Old Testament. That is incredible, right? They will look on him whom they have pierced, on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And here John picks it up, right? And he says, What I'm about to unfold for you culminates in the coming of the Lord Jesus, this one that was prophesied. This story ends with him sitting on the throne of power, judging the nations and inaugurating his eternal kingdom. And that final day will be a day of vindication when every eye shall see Jesus as he is, even the eyes of those who put him to death. Thanks be to God. Let's go back into the text at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation. Don't you love that phrase? There's no prosperity gospel in the book of Revelation. Your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Let me pause here. All of of this description of the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. 
We don't have time to read it now, but you should read it sometime. It comes from Daniel 7, 9 to 10. And it, and it talks about the Son of Man and how he, he sees, he's, he's able to see right into the soul of people. It's marvelous. You should read it. The Holy Spirit is saying to John and, and through John to us that Jesus is the Son of Man, spoken of in Daniel 7. Now, later we will find out that he's also the Ancient of Days. And that person is also in Daniel 7. Wait for your mind to be blown by that, okay? But for now, we need to get back into the text. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, it's always good when Jesus does your interpreting work for you. And here he tells us what these last symbols mean. The stars are the angels or the messengers of the church, and the lampstands are the churches themselves. They are the light of the world. They are the message of God, and they summon lost people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. All right, we've covered a lot of ground today, and we've been dealing with a new type of literature. So let me just summarize the main insights and takeaways from today's chapter. Number one, insight number one, God is on the throne. It, it must have felt to the first century church like history was spinning out of control, like weird things were going down that they couldn't explain. And the first and most important insight is no matter how weird history gets, no matter what is going on, know this, God is on the throne. Second thing, history is not spiraling out of control. Things are actually unfolding according to the divine plan. Number three, Jesus is in the midst of the churches. He's speaking to them. He's helping them. He's strengthening them. Insight number four, he is testing them and refining them by the sending forth of his living word. He is making a survey of the churches. He's walking through the midst of them. Insight five, Jesus knows all. He sees all, and he will not be fooled by the false or by the fakers. He sees into the very heart of the matter and penetrates deep into the mind of man. Insight number six, Jesus is watching you as you pass through the trials of life and death. And if you belong to him, and if you endure to the end, you will surely not be left to perish in hell and Hades. He will set you free unto eternal life, there to reign with him forever. That's the message of this first chapter. And if the book ended here, we would already be greatly encouraged. But there is more, and it gets better. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you for